The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning and uh, welcome to Heritage Christian Fellowship. For those of you who are new here, we'd love to welcome you. Um, If you are in need of a Bible this morning, would you go ahead and raise your hand? And while I'm making announcements, there are some people here who would love to put a Bible in your hands. If you don't have one, it's our gift to you. If you do have one, that's a loaner, and, uh, and you can return it after the service. Uh, a couple of announcements before we get rolling here. Uh, first of all, this next weekend is the men's retreat. Now, um, this is a, a great opportunity for you guys, especially, I, I think guys more than anybody, really struggle with finding ways to connect with other dudes. Girls just seem to do it naturally. I mean, they go to the bathroom together. They, you know, it's, it's like, hey, let's just hang out all the time. Guys, not so much. So if you're looking for a way, fellas, to be connected, retreats are a real important part of that. It's an opportunity for you to get to know guys on a personal level, to break things down to where it's not just sort of the, uh, the cattle call of Sunday mornings, right? You've got extended time sitting around a campfire. I heard there's going to be a big bonfire, hopefully. Jeff's trying to get that stuff set up even as we speak. And it's a wonderful opportunity for fellowship and teaching and connection. And, uh, and this is your last chance to get signed up for that. That's this next weekend. You can sign up at the info desk. Um, that's always a really awesome event, by the way. Um, last year, I think the guys like wrestled a bear and rode unicorns. It was pretty amazing. So uh, you, you don't want to miss out on that. Make sure that you, you sign up. Also, the flip side of 50 is having a fall event uh, October 24th. It's from 6.30 to 9.30. It's uh, harvest festivities. There's, there's free admission. It doesn't cost anything. And no sign-ups necessary. You just show up. Um, also, tonight is a huddle night. For those of you who are maybe unfamiliar with sort of the DNA of heritage, one of the things that we're really pushing forward and pressing into in the future is getting really good at small groups. If you just take a quick second right now to just look around you, just take a look around you, there are about four to five hundred adults sitting in the sanctuary right now, okay? It is impossible to build relationships, to do the things that the Bible says in, in giving gifts that you have to the church body, or to, in receiving gifts that one another possess in this setting right here. We have enough time to get together, all rally in corporate worship and in the listening of God's word, and then it's, it's time to move out. Huddle groups are a place where you can come and share out of what God has done in your heart or what he's speaking to you, and we're all responding to the scriptures. Right now we're going through a wonderful video series as a church, getting really good at defining the gospel and just how explicit it really is. Um, So if you're not involved in a huddle group, would you consider today looking one up? Would you consider checking one out and just going and see, uh, going to see what it's like to be a part of a small group environment where you can get really connected and plugged in? Fourth thing, and this this should bring resounding praise and adoration towards the Lord. The coffee shop is now officially back open. All right, yeah. Especially with the winter months coming on, we know how Christians love their crack. And so um, we want to make sure that you guys have a fresh supply. So the coffee shop will be open on Sunday mornings. It's no longer free. Now, while we didn't have people to work in the coffee shop, we supplied free coffee coffee as a benefit. But that door, that season of grace has now officially closed and uh, we're back to just a regular coffee shop type setting. So make sure that you stop by Holy Joe's and uh, check that out if you are longing for a little caffeine surge. Hey, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians today. So if you grab your Bibles, would you, would you open up to the book of Ephesians? 
Now, I don't know how this worked out, but um, as a fill-in teacher, I managed to get two Sundays back-to-back. So I have this Sunday and next Sunday while Pastor Jeff is ministering to the guys at the men's retreat. So it's a wonderful blessing to have an opportunity to sort of continue a thought for more than just one, one Sunday service. Now, in light of that, um, you know, Jeff and I and the staff were kind of talking about, you know, okay, so Jeremy, you could just kind of pick up in Ephesians where we've left off, and which I'm more than happy to do. But Jeff was like, okay, but that really only gives you four verses because there's this one section I really want to teach, right? And I'm like, I'm going to do a two-part series out of four verses. No, I mean, I do like to ramble, right? Um, but but we, we began to think, okay, maybe it would be more effective for me to um, skip ahead a little and, um, and take a look at marriage. And so for the next two Sundays, we're going to be talking about marriage here on Sunday morning. Um, and, and I want to kind of lay out the plan, if you will. Today we're going to talk about marriage in principle, okay? That is, um, what is this whole thing all about? Why do we... Why do we get married? Why are Christians up in arms about the definition of marriage? Why is it such a holy thing for believers? And then second of all, I want to talk about marriage in practice. Marriage in practice. We'll we'll cover that um, next Sunday. Now, before we kind of dive into that, uh, I, I think it's good for us to remind ourselves a little bit of context. So we've been looking at the book of Ephesians and discovering, as a church, our identity in Christ. Now, this kind of sounds like when we talk about discovering our identity, it sounds like an internal exercise, doesn't it? Like, I'm going to find out who I am and how I work. Like, the only thing that we hope to accomplish is some sort of understanding about our inner nature as a result of the gospel. This, however, is, is a very short-sighted view of what we're actually seeking to accomplish. As a matter of fact, we're, we're hoping to go much deeper than that. For what changes on the inside of us begins to be lived out on the outside of us. It affects how we live. The way that we see ourselves affects how we live. You want proof of that? Take a look at kids that get bullied. Look at their demeanor. Look at the way that they carry themselves. What they believe to be true on the inside, that they are powerless, that they are defeated, that they are worthless, begins to be lived out on the outside. Next thing you know, you see the kid who's at the school, he's got his hood, it's pulled down over, he's looking down, he carries with slumped shoulders. You've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. So obtaining a sense of identity doesn't just shape our internal life, it actually begins to shape our external life as well. It has an effect on how we live. And every person, whether we like it or not, has a worldview. We all have a perspective on how it is that we're to live in this world. Now in the first two chapters of Ephesians, we we learned about our identity. So we're going to kind of just review, and I'm going to walk you forward to the section on marriage so that we can see, okay, there is, there's an aspect where our identity now shapes practice in marriage, okay? So check this out. First of all, we learn in chapter 1, verse 3, that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then the very next verse, in verse 4, we learn that we were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. We learned in verse 5 that we are adopted into God's family as a result of Jesus' redemption. And we're reminded in verse 7 that we have forgiveness for our trespasses and for our sins. We're reminded in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 1 that we now know the mystery of God's will. How that in Christ, he plans to unite all things in heaven and on earth and to redeem everything that has been made for his glory or as a reflection 
or a manifestation of his innate goodness. Okay? And then we learned in chapter 2, excuse me, in, in, in chapter 1 at the very end, verses 13 through 14, we learned that we have been also sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that, that sealing of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in our lives, the power that comes with that, the blessing, the relationship, the connection that we have to God as a result of that is only a fraction of, it's a down payment of all the benefits of what God has promised us in the future. And in Ephesians 2, we learn that we've been saved by grace and now called to participate in what God is doing in redeeming the world. We're called to participate in God's work or redemption in the world. And finally, at the end of Ephesians 2, in verses 19 through 22, we learn that God's plan is to make the entire universe a habitation of worship, a place where he meets with his creation. We learn that this habitation is called God's household or God's temple or in other places throughout the scriptures, it's often referred to by Paul and by others as the kingdom of God. Okay. Now in Ephesians chapter 4, through the end of the book, Paul is going to get very practical. He begins to talk about now, okay, because of all these things that we saw in chapters 1 and 2, this is now how we live. If this is true, then this affects all of this over here. All areas of practical living are impacted by those previous truths. Pastor Jeff will be walking us through the practical ways that this affects our life in the church community. But if I was to sum up this idea, I would have to say something like this. If we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, if we've been chosen before the foundations of the world, if we've been adopted into God's family and had our sins and trespasses forgiven and now know the mystery of God's will and have been sealed and empowered with the Holy Spirit and now have been called to participate in God's work after having been saved by his kindness and grace, and we are together with God now building this household or this kingdom of God, what does this now change in day-to-day -day life for me? That's a pretty practical question, don't you think? As a matter of fact, it's such a huge topic that Paul takes the last half of chapter 3 to really just pray for us. He says, he says, man, I, I have to pray, I have to pause for just a moment and pray for you. Let, let's read his prayer together in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 14. He says this. For this reason, because of all that, because of all that we've learned about our identity in the Lord, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his might in your inner being, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout gener all generations forever and ever, amen. Did you catch what he said there? It, it, it's almost as if he is saying, this idea about how the gospel impacts regular living, regular life, is so huge that I'm kind of worried you're not going to be able to absorb it all 
and take it all in. So I, I, I'm just praying to God, literally, not just saying that. I'm literally praying to God that he will strengthen your inner man so that you will grab a hold of this truth and it will, will become such a part of your being, such a, a part of the fiber of how you work, that it will begin to spread out. That it will, it will reach into your marriage life. It will reach into your community life. It will reach into your parenting life. It will reach into your, par- your personal life. It will really reach into your spiritual life and the way that you engage the enemy in battle. The implication of the gospel is this, that it's like a seed that's sort of tossed into the garden of our hearts and begins to grow roots, right? And fills up the entire garden. That's the idea. He's like, the gospel is not just taking over the world, it's taking over every aspect of our lives. (laughs) I mean, isn't that what the coming of Jesus is all about? Essentially, isn't the coming of Jesus an invasion? I mean, you think about that. Here's the enemy. He's got free reign on the earth. God's got carved out one little slice of land called Israel. And, and he thinks, the enemy thinks, oh, I'm winning. Look at me. Look at all the real estate I own. And then Jesus comes. And it's an invasion. Jesus is dropped behind enemy lines. And the gospel starts with 120 people in an upper room and begins to spread to over 2 billion people throughout the planet right now. And the same thing that God is doing in the world, He is doing in us through the gospel. He's taking over. He's taking over. So for this week, this week we want to focus on Marriage in principle. Why do we as Christians behave in a certain way in marriage? What are the guiding principles that formulate our perspective on marriage? For us, we get our definition of what we do and how we do it from how God has framed this story or the history of the world or this thing, this mystery that God has been opening up to us through Jesus, we get our definition of how we live through the framework of the story of the gospel, God's redemptive work in the world. And and Paul here is a pioneer in helping us to understand this and helping us to understand the implications of the gospel and its far-reaching effects on the earth. And he's thinking about life in the light of God's kingdom. He's thinking about all the aspects of life in the face of God's plan to redeem the earth unto himself. And in Ephesians 5, he begins to talk about marriage in the framework of the arrival of Jesus and God's relationship with his people. And so let's read that together. Ephesians chapter 5, picking it up in verse 22. He says this, Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife really loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, did you catch the big idea here? God desires to give us a model for what marriage looks like. So what does he do? He uses his relationship with us, with his covenant people, as a primary example. The wife is to love her husband like the church loves Jesus. And the husband is to love the wife like Jesus loves the church. These two guiding principles are the bedrock of Christian understanding about marriage. Now, when God seeks to clarify what marriage is supposed to be like, he uses the example of Christ and the church. He tells us, listen, there is an example. Now, why why wouldn't he use some other example? I mean, aren't there other great examples of marriage throughout history? I mean, we've we've got um, Adam and Eve, right? How'd that end? got Abraham and Sarah. That was complicated, right? Ruth and Boaz, the whole foot covering thing. I'm not sure what was going on there, but I'm pretty sure it was shady. (laughs) Who else? Captain and Tennille? Jay-Z and Beyonce? What's our example? How how do we know what it is that God wants? I mean, we are like children stumbling around on the playground, all at the same level of understanding, going, what's it like to be a man? Oh, well, that's the biggest kid on the playground. It must be like him. And he's looking at people around him going, what's it like to be a man? I don't know. Maybe I'll pick that guy. And as we think about and consider marriage, that's what we're all doing. We're all sort of looking around at all these examples and trying to figure out, okay, what's the best example of what a marriage is? And it's the blind leading the blind. So why doesn't he use some earthly example? I think we all know the answer. The standard for us is set by the best relationship not just the average relationship. The standard for us in marriage, the thing that we're to compare ourselves with, is not one another. It's the best example of a relationship. The Chernobyl disaster was a catastrophic nuclear accident. It occurred on April 26th of 1986 at the Chernobyl nuclear plant in Ukraine. There at the Chernobyl nuclear plant, uh, you actually had sort of the budding up of three separate countries, Russia, Ukraine, and, and Bulgaria. And this power plant, when it officially blew, blew radioactive ash and dust really throughout that entire region. An explosion and a fire released large quantities of radioactive particles into the atmosphere which spread up over most of western USSR and even on into Europe. It was the worst nuclear power plant accident in history in terms of cost and casualties. It's one of only two classified as a level seven event, which is the maximum level of catastrophe that you can measure. The other one, incidentally, is the Fukushima event that took place in Japan. 
The battle to contain the contamination and avert um, the, this nuclear disaster uh, to be, from becoming a, a greater catastrophe ultimately involved over 500,000 workers and cost an, el, an estimated 18 billion rubies. And during the accident itself, 31 people died, and the long-term effects such as cancer and other forms of a disease are still being investigated. That single event defined the future for countless lives. There were 400 times more radioactive material released in Chernobyl than by the atomic bomb at Hiroshima. 400 times the amount of radiation. The disaster released one one-hundredth to one one-thousandth of the total amount of radi radioactivity released by nuclear weapons during the 1950s and 60s. Approximately 100,000 kilo square kilometers of land was significantly contaminated with the fallout. Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, all of these countries were, were devastated by the effects of radiation. Now, it's easy for us to just say, okay, that's tragic, that's, you know, that's horrible. But let, let's put a face on that. One of those lives is a, is a guy named Sasha. Sasha. This is Sasha right here. This is what Sasha looks like. It, he has four toes on each foot. All of his muscles and the sinews of his body are intermingled in a way that even the slightest movement causes him pain continuously. And he lives in continuous and total pain. Sasha is one of the Chernobyl children at Vesnova Orphanage. There are more than five million children that are living in affected areas of Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine. And every day, Sasha lives with the pain of Chernobyl. It affects every area of his life. Matter of fact, it has become the defining mark of his personhood. In daily life, Sasha tries to cope with the effects of radiation even in the smallest of tasks, like drinking a cup of water or walking across the room. This is life after Chernobyl. But you know, the Bible opens up with a different kind of explosion. It opens up with the story of God and his kingdom, and everything is right, and everything is perfect, and in it, he establishes a union between he and his creation that is deeply, deeply relational. There is harmony between God and man. There is unity between Adam and his wife. There is shared labor in their life in the garden. And then, and then, the atom bomb goes off. And sin enters the world. Now from our perspective, the sin that enters into the kingdom of God is minimal. It's, it's as simple as eating a piece of fruit when God said don't do it. And we think about all the evils that have come in the world as a consequence of that sin, and it seems like very disproportionate, doesn't it? Isn't there a part of us that's like, really? Over fruit? What is that all about? But that's our limited perspective because we often don't see that sin at its core is a relational betrayal. It is a rejection of the unity that we have with God for power to be equal with God. It is a spurning of the beauty of the uncreated to settle for the shabbiness of the created. It is a rejection of his loving provision to long for poison. It is a denial of his love for man 
to embrace more fully man's love for himself. Think about this. What's your reaction when a betrayal happens in marriage? I mean, we all sort of have that guttural reaction. There's sorrow, there's sadness, right? But when a person continues to betray a marriage, continues to do harm to the one that they're supposed to love, isn't there a sort of righteous indignation that rises up in us where we're like, knock it off. Stop hurting that person. Stop betraying their love. Don't you see what you're sacrificing? Don't you understand the damage that it's doing? Do you understand it? And you see, that exact sense of betrayal is what sin is at its core. At its core, it is the betrayal of a relationship with God. And the bomb goes off and all of us are like Sasha. And we are all twisted and bent and broken by sin. We're all affected in such a way that even the smallest task of loving each other is laborious. And as a result, we're left looking for a solution. How do we get lives that work out together? I mean, when, when I go to Barnes & Noble, for example, even in the Christian section, it's really kind of fascinating. You've got, um, you know, a section on theology, which is about, like, that wide, and about, like, you know, it fits one row of books. Then there is sort of Christian inspiration, and that's like a whole row, right? It's the whole top to bottom, the full column, full aisle, one little shelf dedicated to theology. Now, if I flip over on the back side, I get information about relational issues. And the number of books, the amount of ink that has been spilled to try and solve relational issues is immense. How many of you have ever felt like, okay, we, we have to have a better marriage? For those of you who are married, I, we have to have a better marriage. What book can we read? And then you go to Google it, right? You're like, holy cow. There are 50 million books we can read. So the next step, let's get a recommendation. So we ask around. Okay, um, hey, can you tell me a good book? pastor or friend or so-and-so that I can read that would help improve my marriage? 45 different answers. I read this book. It affected me in this way. I read this book. It affected me in this way. Now, I'm not saying that those things are bad or evil. I'm saying, guys, we're trying, we're struggling to figure this relational thing out. And we're doing so in such a way that that everybody is scrambling for solutions. There is, if you're taking notes, point one, there is solution confusion. Solution confusion. There's a segment of the population that says, okay, listen, if you want to unravel this relational mystery, what's wrong with people, why it's hard to stay married, why it's hard to have a good marriage, why it's hard to have a good friendship, If you want to unlock that, if you want to understand that, you have to look back. Look back. We share, if you will, the life of Sasha. And life after the garden has never been the same. So what do we do when the whole world is shot through with radioactive particles of sin? When every relationship is broken and every person is malformed, some say we need to look back. If we could just figure out the things that went wrong, we can unlock how to fix it all. Maybe, maybe I'm experiencing brokenness because of how I was raised. Maybe what's wrong with me is the way that I grew up. And so I'm trying to relate to this person that I'm married to and, 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 and I, I can't figure it out because I grew up a specific way and I was trained wrong and I don't know anything different. So here I am. And, and we look back, we're like, what's wrong with mom and dad? Why am I so screwed up? And then we conclude, oh, yeah, they totally jacked me up. 
right? Well, how come they were jacked up? Let's look at grandpa and grandma now. Well, they were messed up because of grandpa and grandma. Well, how come they were messed up? Because of their father and their mother. How come they were messed up? Because of their father and their mother. And on and on and on and on. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. See a pattern? And we think we're going to find the solution by looking back. We think if, if I can just understand how the brokenness got here, maybe I can fix it. I can unravel how to heal it. Now to be fair, there is some merit in understanding how our sins and the sins of others have affected us and shaped our reality. There's merit in that. But is it a solution? Just how, how far do we go back? If we want to, we can track it all the way back to Adam and Eve. And others would say, no, 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 no. Don't look back. If you want to create marital harmony, if you want the marriage that everybody desires, the one that we all have as the standard in our mind, the place where there is peace and rest and we love each other and we're flourishing as individuals, if you want that marriage, you don't look back, you look in. You look in. Others suggest that this inward searching of the heart and a will to change offer to us the solution. That if I, if I just learn enough about my internal functions, the way I think, the reason I decide what I decide, the motives of my heart, I can somehow change my disciplines of thought and be motivated to act or behave differently. And so millions of dollars are spent every year on self-help resources. Books are read. Seminars are given. Video series are produced all with the intent of helping us heal what is inside. Now, again, I want to be fair here. There are some tremendous benefits to knowing our hearts, to understanding how it is that we work. And, and we are, in fact, commanded in Scripture to have our minds renewed, to think about what we think to ponder why we reason the way that we do and whether or not that's in line or in keeping with the will of God. However, even the perspective that we use to understand our hearts is skewed by our sinful nature. Remember Sasha? We view the world from Sasha's perspective. From his perspective, the world is all wrong. And when he looks at himself, he says, and I'm all wrong too. And he can try and analyze it, but he sees only the brokenness. When we look inward, we look as through a carnival mirror. The image that we see of ourselves is distorted. It's distorted by the lack of objectivity that is actually needed to assess our own hearts without giving ourselves a mulligan. You know what I'm saying? That's where I'm like, I judge you by your actions, I judge me by my intentions. I get a mulligan. It's okay for me. Not okay for you. Because I understand how I work. See, we skew the truth. We, we begin to bend what is real through our own will. We lack perspective to really even see ourselves clearly. And so there are insights that we can pick up and things that we can learn, but are we really ever going to fix the problem? No, we're just going to assess what's wrong. Looking in won't work. When we look inward, we look through a carnival mirror. The image we see is distorted. It's distorted by our lack of objectivity. We only see our sins in part. We only see our hearts in part. We self-edit. We see through a glass dimly. So how do we possibly unravel the effects of sin upon relationships when the perspective that we have on our own selves is skewed by the mess that we're in? I mean, 
When, when I think about this, I mean, it drives me crazy to figure myself out. I don't know why I can't pick a salad over a burger. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, I know it's good. I know I'll be healthier. I know that in the end, I'm going to live a longer, fuller, more healthy life. But dang, that burger looks good. Why do I want what is poison? I don't understand it. The lens that I view the world with has been cracked, shattered, broken, obliterated by sin. So now, I'm supposed to search inward, right? I'm supposed to look at what's in me and then unravel my own problem. How does a broken, twisted, sinful person unravel their brokenness? We can't. We can observe what's wrong, but we've got no power to fix the problem. I'd like to share with you for a minute, because I'm going to be talking about marriage for the next um, two weeks, or for this week and next week. I'd like to share with you a, a little bit of my history, because I, I, would, I would hate for you to think, Jeremy has all the answers. I don't. I, I, I'm with you guys. I'm figuring it out as I go. <laughs> when, when I got married, I was 21 years old. I see 21-year-olds now, and I'm like, they gave that guy a license? He's like 12, right? I think about what it means to be a 21-year-old and take on the responsibility of, of caring for a household and a family, and I'm, I'm just like, God, I'm not sure about your plan here. In the middle of that, also, we were planting a church at the time, and so... You know, I, I was making a grand total of 350 bucks every two weeks, and, you know, I was not a great provider. <laughs> you know, working my butt off to make things work. And then guessing at marriage. And the best example that I had were people that I looked up to. People like John Corson. I looked up to him and to his wife and, and the environment there, and I, I saw a wife that loved her husband and I saw him as a very spiritual person and I thought, oh man, that must be what marriage is like. Really pretty wife. Let's you do all the talking. I'm like, I'm in. Right? That's obviously not the way it happens for them in real life, but that was my perspective. You see? And so... I'm seeking to model, then, my marriage after what I've seen. I know I'm screwed up because I look back, man, I'm like, oh, I look in, I'm like, mm. right? So i got to find some example. So I, 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 look, I look over here in this ministry example, and I go, oh, marriage must be like that. But I'm getting a highly edited view of that marriage, Right? I see them for an hour on Sunday, most of which they're not even interacting with one another. And so I, I set standards based off of that. And my wife is like, I am dying for loneliness. I'm drowning in the work that we're doing. I am... I am so frustrated by what is going on in our lives right now. And she's hurting and she's broken. And all I can think is, why can't you just smile and be supportive? I look back on those young years of my life and I see, by God's grace, how over time we have grown. But I'll tell you, it was the blind leading the blind. You know that whole seven years of tribulation thing? That's for real. <laughs> we went through some tribulation, I'm not going to lie. 
we have seen some hard times. And man, my wife has seen the ugliest parts of my heart. There are things that I guarantee you that if you guys knew that about me, you would not want to come and hear me preach the word of God. And if I knew everything about you, I wouldn't want to talk to you. But I don't come as an expert in marriage. I don't come as one who's going to somehow give you the five steps on how to fix everything that's wrong in marriage. What I'm going to tell you is that marriage is a lot like kingdom life. Okay? Marriage is a lot like kingdom life. That is, we have the framework. We're supposed to, in some way, in our relationship, be reflective of Christ and the church. The, the example I'm looking to is not John Corson or Jeff Hensley or Jeremy Neff or mom and dad or grandpa and grandma or any other relationship I've seen on the earth. The one that I'm looking to is Jesus and the church. And I say, okay, because this kingdom that God is building is the ultimate reality, it's the super reality. It's what we all are going to be living in for all eternity. Because that is true, how then do I live in the light of that? And, and guys, it's a little bit like when you go bowling and you're happy to be with your kids because they put the little bumpers up. So if you whiff it, you know, it's guiding you back. I'd say marriage is a lot like that. Going, oh, I'm out of step with God's kingdom. Okay, let's course correct. Oh, I'm out of step with God's kingdom. Okay, let's course correct. It's this constant pursuit. It's the resetting of our desires to be aligned with God's desires. It's the living for his kingdom and for his glory, and it's a continual pursuit in life. It is not a one-stop fix. You are not going to read the next book that will solve all of your marital issues. You are not going to come into my office and sit down with me and get the five keys to emotional well-being and have your marriage be 100% peaceful from then on. That is never going to happen. It is the lifelong pursuit of surrender to Jesus and conformity to his will. That's what we're aiming for. See, Paul doesn't set the standard for marriage and examples of the world because the examples that we have in the world are broken as well. Instead, he draws our attention to God's restoration. To God's restoration of what was broken. And he says, we should model marriage after that. In other words... Marriage is modeled after God's relationship with us. We learn how to deal with the weaknesses of others and love through difficulty and in the face of adversity through how God has loved us. Marriage is a kingdom matter. It is a function of each broken person committing themselves to Christ in the same way that Christ has committed himself to us. I don't have a perfect marriage. My wife and I, we fight. We've gotten better at it over time. We used to fight in ways that were really unhealthy. We used to fight in ways where we're trying to one-up one another or overpower or exert one, our will over each other. Now, we fight for one another. We fight for relationship, for closeness, for intimacy. And when other things are causing disharmony or bringing us out of step with that life of unity together in the Lord, pursuing and living for His glory, we step back and we assess and we are willing to say to one another, hey, bonehead. That's my wife talking to me. I don't talk to her like that. <laughs> hey, what's wrong with you? I need your face to be attentive to me. Put down your device. 
I need your time. Hey, you're, you're not being attentive to the kids. You need to address this issue. Hey, it's time for repentance. You've been sinning against God in this way. You need to come back into alignment with his will and walking with him. See, guys, this is the nurturing of a deep relationship with one another with the Lord. It's a sort of trinity, if you will. A unity between us and God. Where his will is our will, his desire is our desire, and we are living for his glory. Pursuing him. For those who undertake such an act of faith and courage, both the redeemed and redeemer are further transformed or changed in our minds and in our hearts. There's a, there's a legend among the Iroquois of a, a guy named Hiawatha. All five nations of the Iroquois were at war with one another. When the peacemaker, a guy named Daganawida, <laughs> Daganawida, uh, appeared among them in a canoe of white stone. He began going among the tribes and offering his teachings of peace and eventually arrived at the house of a man who was notorious. A, a man who was notorious because he was a man who ate human flesh. The ultimate no-no. And when Daganawida climbed onto the roof and peered down through the smoke hole of this man's house, he saw the man setting onto the fire a kettle containing the meat of a human body. And at that moment, the man who eats humans looked into the pot and saw, reflected in the water, Daganawida's face imposed on his own. And in that moment, he had a revelation. He realized that the man who possessed such wise and such a wise and noble face could never eat human flesh. And immediately he took the kettle outside and he emptied it. And Daganawida taught his message of peace to the reformed man, and the two of them continued together in delivering this message to the tribes and bringing peace to the tribes. This is a, the legend of Hiawatha. Guys, this study in identity is just that. It's what we're doing. We're beholding, as in a mirror, the face of Jesus Christ. We are looking at him and all that he's done to redeem the world. And, and we're going to see our brokenness. We're going to see that the, the, there were some of us who were broken in different ways. And, in, and, and our lives are inconsistent with that reflection of who he is. But all of a sudden, we're going to take the pots of our sin and the things that are wrong with us, and we're going to take them outside, and we're going to throw that stuff in the streets and say, I need to be like him. As we frame marriage, as we talk about marriage, I, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that, that we're going to somehow in this room come up with the, the ten keys on how to have the perfect marriage. What I do want you to see is the glory of Jesus Christ reflected in the gospel. I want you to see how perfectly he loves us. I want you to see how perfectly he pursues us. That when we're failing, what his attitude is towards us I want you to see how he's relentless in his pursuit of our hearts. He says, no, I want it all. I want every part of it. Nothing hidden, naked, not ashamed, fully known, fully loved. I want you to, I want you to see that in Christ Jesus, we have a model for what it looks like to love one another and to be married. This is our pursuit. Now, I realize that some of you here are not married. And you're like, oh great, a two-week series that has nothing to do with me. 
Actually, I would say this has everything to do with you. Because you are training how to be married through your relationship with Jesus. You are learning in Christ what to look for in a future husband or wife. You're learning what submission and surrender looks like. You're learning what self-sacrifice looks like. Those of you who are single or those of you who are still in high school and younger and you're dating, let me ask you a couple of questions. What is the ideal relationship for you? What do you imagine? Have you set your sights only as far as the wedding day? White dresses, flowers. Have you set your sights only on the external, the physical? I want him to be tall, dark, handsome. What's your ideal? Can I, can I suggest something to you? Set your ideal upon Christ. Here's what I want you to do for those of you who are single. I want you to form in the back of your hearts and mind right now a vision for what your future would look like if somebody loved Jesus and lived for Jesus wholeheartedly in the way that God is calling you to do. And what would it look like for both of you to come together and pursue the Lord together? To live for His glory together? Some of you are saying, Jeremy, that sounds great for the people who are single, but it's too late. I already married Dumbo. (laughs) Maybe it's time for a course correction. Maybe you guys have been living for retirement. Maybe you've been living for that next pay grade. You've been living for pleasure, family activities. You've been living for the kids. Maybe it's time once again to reset and realign your focus and say, as a family, we live for Jesus and his kingdom. We are pursuing him and him alone. And our closeness Our unity is born not in shared activities and the things that we do in the same proximity of one another, but our closeness in unity is that we share everything in life with one another. We share trials and sin and repentance and victory and struggle We're living on this course, living for that golden city, for the kingdom of God, looking to that moment when our Redeemer will appear and we will see Him and cry out, Lord, thank You that You finally come. What are you living for, married people? What is it that you pursue? Do you see marriage as a tangible demonstration of the love of Christ? Have you considered the reality that your family is a gospel outpost that is portraying to your children and your neighbors the love that Christ has for them? And if you lived under this paradigm, if you lived from that perspective, what would you change today? Husband, are you valuing your wife like Christ has loved and valued the church? Wife, do you love and cherish your husband like the church loves and cherishes Christ? This is a kingdom assignment. I'm going to have Seth come up and he's going to play a little bit for us. But while he is coming up, I, I want you to do this. If you're here and, um, and you're single, would you raise your hand real quickly? Excellent. Those of you who are married, raise your hand up high. Keep your, single people, keep your hands up. 
up high, up high. I want to see them all. Those of you who are married, I want you to lay hands on the single people around you, okay? I want you to lay hands on them. And we're going to pray. We're going to pray as a church body. If you don't have anybody laying hands on you as a single person, hold your hand up high. Those of you who are around, you're going to go and minister to those people right now. Ready? Okay, let's pray. Father, those of us who are not married long for that day. And some of us, Lord, have been given the gift of singleness. But God, I pray that you would help us to see our lives through the lens of the gospel, that we've been called to live for your glory and in fellowship and harmony and union with you. God, I pray that by your grace, these people who have raised their hands would be given a clear vision of what the future looks like to live for your glory in a lifelong pursuit until you return. God, I pray that right now, if in any way they have been living with their mission skewed, they have, they have veered off the path towards the bumper rail, that this would be the moment that you call them back to living for your glory and for your purpose that you would enable them by your grace to have a, a single heart that is wholly in pursuit of loving you. That you would be their first love and their eternal love. Thank you, God, for loving them in sickness and in health. Thank you for loving them in the the depths of their poverty and enough to give them the riches of heaven. Thank you, God, that you've loved them when things are good, when things are bad, for better, for worse, for life everlasting. Now, God, grab a hold of the reins of their heart and draw them close to you and lead them to you as they continue to live for your glory and kingdom. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For those of you who are married, now is a time of repentance with your families. If you've been living for something other than the kingdom, if you as a family have set your sights on the things that are temporary, and you've recognize through the preaching of God's word, through the understanding of what God is building and your identity and your role in that, that something is off, now is the time to gather with your family. So I want you right now, husbands, wives, turn inward to one another. And I want you to take a moment. I want you to take a moment to assess right now. And say, man, I see this area and I know that this is not God's heart for us. I want this to change. God, give us grace right now to change. Turn inwardly right now and, and I want you to take just a few moments right now to confess sin as a couple. Areas or ways that you are not living for the kingdom. Take that time right now. now married couples now that you've acknowledged what's wrong I want you to take your hearts to the Lord as a couple and I want you to pray and confess it to him say God forgive us we represent you to our kids our love is the first 
and primary example by which they will know what your love is like. God, give us your grace. Forgive us and set our feet upon the rock. Change our course. Direct our lives. Would you right now go to him? Will you pray together as a family? Father, we've heard your word. We know that we don't live unto ourselves, that we have been redeemed for a purpose, that our lives are kingdom outposts, and they, they are, our marriages are a reflection of the gospel, that the life we live, we live not unto ourselves, but unto you and for your glory. So God, we ask you to shape in us a clear understanding of what that looks like. As we understand our identity in you, God, may it give us passion to live for your glory in day-to-day -day life. Give us a heart to pursue relationship and sharing and transparency and vulnerability with one another. Give us a heart, Lord, to pursue wholeness in you and for your glory. God, use your word to set our feet towards the kingdom and towards eternity. We thank you for your word. As we finish off in one final worship song, God, be honored, be glorified, be lifted up in the presence of your people. In Jesus' name. Jesus, you.